Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It is my deep honor to welcome to the Morning Glory Project today, Lauren Trantham. Lauren is the founder and executive director of Ride My Road. In 2016, after leaving an emotionally, psychologically abusive relationship, Lauren asked herself a simple question, but it was also a profound question. It was, can I heal my broken heart by helping others? I love that question, by the way. And she started Ride My Road as a personal photography project to photograph American survivors of abuse and sex trafficking. Since that time, and in addition to photographing over 80 survivors, she's ridden tens of thousands of miles on her motorcycle, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for survivor-led organizations. Lauren Trantham, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm honored to have you here. Hi, Betsy. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about this, because this this transition, you were a photographer, that's your profession, Correct. and you did portraiture, I understand. Yes. And so that was true while you were married. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going on in that relationship and what kind of prompted you into this next phase of your life? Absolutely. It's, it's quite a journey, one that I was actually very surprised to find myself in. Um, I like to tell the story starting with how I viewed myself, which at the time I thought I was this confident, um, intelligent, independent woman. And as a profession, I was showing other women that they were the same. And so through portrait photography, I was um, helping women to have confidence and show their beauty and, and um, be powerful in their presence um, all the while. And sort of honestly, unbeknownst to me, I was actually experiencing abuse in my marriage, which I didn't realize. Some people might kind of feel funny about saying, how are you experiencing abuse? And you didn't even know it. So you weren't being physically mistreated in terms of violence or those kinds of things. So tell me a little bit about what that, what that was, what kind of, what is that abuse like? Exactly. This is, this is a little bit of my mission because I think so many of us don't really understand what abuse looks like. And so we think if I'm not being hit, I'm not being abused. And even in my relationship beyond that, I wasn't even necessarily verbally abused. I wasn't um, in a situation where he was screaming obscenities at me, or there wasn't like a ton of verbal abuse, but there was emotional abuse. But again, because I didn't understand the signs, I really had no idea. I just thought I was living in a very difficult marriage. So tell me what, tell me what you think, what constitutes emotional abuse then in that way? Yeah. If it's not kind of yelling, because I think that most people would think of emotional abuse as, you know, berating you or screaming at you or those kinds of things. Can you tell me what, what you experience, what you now look at the abuse to be? Yeah, it it was much more insidious and invasive um, and subtle for me. It was a lot of undermining and manipulation, and um, it was a slow boil over many, many years. And so the relationship started out wonderful. I thought I'd met my dream person. 
He was charming and charismatic. My family loved him. Um, we had a great time together. But looking back, I see now the red flags um, where he began sort of the process of isolating me from friends and family and people who I cared about. Um, and, it, and it did start slow. So it, it, in the beginning, it was like, oh, I find your friend so-and-so like very sarcastic. And then a month later, like, oh, he's really getting on my nerves. And until, you know, a year later, that friend really isn't allowed in my home anymore. Hmm. And so it was much more subtle. And I think that that happens so often. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a romantic relationship. It could be a boss. It could be a friend. It could be some, some sort of a partner partnership um, where there is just this slow boil um, of things like gaslighting, which is a topic that's kind of a buzzword these days, but where they look back on things that happened in the past and they question your memory of it. And it, and it causes you to feel like you don't really know which way is up. The, the isolation, um, the undermining. So isolating you from friends and family. Exactly. And also you talked about, and, and I want to bring this up just a little bit, Lauren, I don't want to linger too long in this challenging part, but I think that a lot of people are in relationships with people like how you described your husband, who was very charismatic and charming and funny, and you felt lucky to be with him. And, you know, he was the perfect guy and they call this love bombing, mm -hmm. you know, when somebody sort of fulfills your absolute every need, they're, they're your ideal love mate and they are over the top romantic and all of that stuff. Not that we all don't crave that. Everyone loves a good rom-com, <laughs> but that was sort of his way of convincing you that he was the right guy for you. Right. Absolutely. And, and then it changes when you, when you weren't the perfect obedient partner to him, things changed. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. There would just be periods where, um, I liken the experience to um, being like with somebody very warm and then all of a sudden the heater becomes unplugged. And then it was, it was um, nothing I did was right and everything was my fault. And my entire life became about mitigating his moods because when he was in a bad mood, although he wouldn't like scream curse words at me, he was very, um, very overbearing and, um, critical. And in the end, I really, I had lost my entire sense of self. My, my entire identity was based around how could I make sure that that person isn't in a bad mood today. Which is just such a hard way to live. And, you know, of course there is physical abuse. There is other kinds, sexual abuse. There's other kinds of torture. And I, I don't want to put, I don't want to do any comparison because when you're in that and you're, you're losing yourself, it's got to be, especially somebody who came like you, you thought of yourself as an independent, intelligent, accomplished person. You were a professional, you had a loving and supportive family, all of those things. And here you found yourself wondering if you were crazy or wondering if you remembered things right or having to fashion yourself a certain way so that you didn't, you know, cause a little tripwire of the, whatever booby trap would set him off. And then ultimately the relationship devolved and, ended. How, how was it that it ended? And then we'll go into the then what? Yeah, sure. It actually ended um, in an affair. I, I caught him in an affair, which was so interesting because at the same time he was telling me the affair happened because I didn't love him enough and I didn't give him enough attention. 
Whereas from my point of view, my entire life was about giving him attention and love <laughs> and just trying to figure out like what's going to make him happy today. And, and so um, I think that's why it was such a rock bottom moment for me, because suddenly everything I thought I was giving was completely negated so much so that he had just moved on. Um, it was just overnight. He, he met somebody and um, it, it was traumatic in that I confronted him and he left and I, I never saw him again. Um, he was just done after seven years. Um, wow. And so, yeah, th that's when the identity crisis really came in because it was like, actually, I feel quite broken. Um, and I started to learn those signs of abuse and started to realize how I, how I had been living. And I had this identity crisis all at the same time. So, <laughs> Well, and also, you know, very often, I mean, not not that things weren't kind of building up to that, but very often there's a departure and a comeback and a, maybe we get counseling and a, you know, there's a process by which a relationship comes to an end, but this sort of like a, a sudden, more like an earthquake than a tornado, right? It's, just, it's like, boom, and it's over and that's that. Yes. And so that had to be so disorienting for you. Yes. And I think that's something that um, some abusers do, right? If you cross them, you are cut out of their life. That's it. That's the end. Mm -hmm. And now looking back, I see where he did that dozens and dozens of times to other people throughout our marriage. But I always felt like he would come back and, and say like it was their fault. And I always believed him like, oh, that sounds like a terrible person. I'm so happy that you, you cut that person out of your life. When in reality, it's just once they kind of discovered his narcissistic tendencies and they set some boundaries, he was done. And so that's what happened to me. You know, it's funny. I've been a therapist for many years. And, and when I had a practice, I often found myself, how do I say this? When, when I would hear, uh, it was usually a woman, when I would hear a woman talk about the new guy in her life, and she'd be all excited about this fabulous guy that had come on. And then she'd tell me the story about how, oh, his ex-wife is just a psycho crazy person. And his, he had this former girlfriend and she was really nuts too. And la, la, la. And I always think, well, if every relationship before you was with a psycho, you're the next psycho. That's <laughs> how that's going to work. You know? exactly. and, and on one hand, it's, I mean, I'm saying it in a funny way, but, but it's tragic on one hand, it feels so deeply personal because my heavens, it was your marriage and you love this person. And this was a horrible tragedy. And on the other hand, it wasn't personal to you at all. This is just what he does with everybody. Yes. And that, that took me years to come to terms with. I think initially I understood that intellectually, but emotionally I, I was wrecked. Sure. But yeah, so that, that was just, the, that was just another piece of the pattern of his type of abuse where he had cut out former job, like bosses, friends. Like when I met him, he didn't have any friends, which is such a huge red flag. <laughs> which is a red flag, but you didn't know, I didn't know, know it, it at the time. The but time. then you got to feel extra so special because you were mm -hmm. his new friend and, exactly. he, and he, you got all of his light. Yes, right? exactly. And, and I think they're also very good listeners. Um, you know, you meet, he, he met me and, and right away, it's like the things that are important to me, work ethic, family, friendships, relationships, and he would sort of mimic that. Um, they become very good, good at mimicking kind of behaviors and, and what you want and what you expect. And then come to find out he didn't actually value any of those things. So he just kind of tailor made the impression for you yes. to, as a lure. Right. No? Right. Which is what narcissistic abuse looks like in so many cases. Mm. Well, so here you are. 
your relationship has ended in a whoosh. <laughs> and there you are, this formerly confident person kind of now kind of gutted and hollowed out. Mm. Tell me about that moment. <laughs> and then this question that you asked, I love this question. Can I heal my broken heart by helping other people? Where did that question come from? Yeah, that question came at what I think it was probably my actual rock bottom because I had um, went through this experience in like a November of 2015. And it was just a really difficult spring because he was a, going around town with his new girlfriend and she was the best and I was the worst. And, and I just, you know, it was devastating. And um, so I started to ride my motorcycle on these little mini trips. And, and you've been a, you've been a biker for, for a long time. For a long time. This. I began riding with my father. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to get on my bike. My bike has carried me so far for so many years. Um, and so I started doing these mini vacations and that's when I realized it didn't matter if I was out moto camping in Eastern Oregon or if I was on my couch, I was equal parts, like equally miserable. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I realized if I was going to make a change, I had to find a way to do that. And I just, I just heard a voice that said, maybe, maybe helping others will, will make you feel better. And, and it sounds like such an altruistic statement, but I think it really just came from a place of desperation. Like I have to do something and maybe this will help. So it was, you know, fairly self-serving in the beginning of like, just somebody make me feel better somehow. How can I do that? So I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll let you say that it was self-serving, but it sounds as though there was something in you that knew that connecting to other people in need was going to serve both. Like maybe I can help them. Maybe they can help me. There was something organic in you. Almost. It sounds like that, that intuitively knew that. When I first started experiencing all that pain, um, from being left and, and discovering like how the relationship had really been a friend of mine sent me this article on narcissistic abuse, which was my first introduction to how I had been living and reading that article really showed me like, wow, I am not alone in this. This is a thing. This happens to a lot of people. And I think that helped me to understand that, um, that I wasn't alone. Mm. And so I do think I, I kind of wanted to seek out people who had triumphed over that so I could learn. I wanted to mm. see if I could figure out what, how did they heal from it? And then maybe I can too. Okay. So bridge the gap for me, Lauren, how do we get from broken hearted photographer, motorcyclist to photographing survivors of sex trafficking and abuse. Tell me about that bridge. Yes. So as a photographer, I thought, okay, I have my camera. I know it is a, it's a tool. It's, um, it's a means to connect and it's a means to create intimacy. And um, it's still, it, at that time was still a, a huge celebration for me to be able to photograph people. And so I thought, I just thought on that camping trip, when I had that thought of, can I heal my broken heart through helping others? I thought I, I can do it on my motorcycle and my camera, or at least I thought maybe I can do it on my motorcycle with my camera. So I just started telling people in town, Hey, I want to do a photography project. Maybe I can photograph other people that have experienced abuse. And I was thinking like domestic violence, or I really didn't know. And somebody local to me in Southern Oregon said, you should reach out to Rebecca Bender. She's a local survivor of sex trafficking. And I thought like Cambodia, like I really had no, I had no idea that sex trafficking happened in the United States in the way that it does. It was not on my radar at all. 
And initially I was really hesitant because I thought that's not really what I'm trying to do. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with me kind of. It's got nothing to do with this, right? Like how how is this going to connect? But then I actually managed to um, reach out to Rebecca Bender and she was gracious enough to take a call from me. And I told her kind of what I was thinking. And within about 10 minutes, she described to me how domestic pimp controlled sex trafficking starts the same way my marriage did. It's the same emotional abuse. It's the same grooming process, the isolation, the love bombing, the undermining, the manipulation. The only thing is my marriage stopped there, whereas her situation where she met her dream man after about nine months of grooming, he did really show his bad side. And then she was she was trafficked from that point moving forward. Um, but that's when it really clicked for me that, oh, yes, there's abuse. Yes, there's narcissistic abuse, but this actually goes so much deeper with a lot of the issues that we're facing in the United States today. And it was actually very connected. It's the same weaponry that your your ex-husband used, but in the hands of somebody even more diabolical. Oh, it, um, intensely. Who is willing to go much further. Intensely diabolical, yes. So you felt a kindredness, it sounds like with these women, though you're not equating your circumstances as identical, you're recognizing some of the same elements in there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so after you met or after you spoke with Rebecca and got kind of inspired, tell me about your trip. You, you took a very long yeah. trip, I understand. <laughs> I, so tell me about this. I still had that desire in my heart to just get out of town. I really just didn't want to be in my community um, having mm. this kind of anxiety of running into to my ex-husband and everything that was going on. And um, luckily, Rebecca Bender, she's a phenomenal leader, and she had started a nonprofit where they mentor American survivors online, and they have a restoration program. And since that time, it has evolved to something even more brilliant and grand, um, more of a university-type setting. But at that time, they were mentoring survivors online. It was a 16-week intensive And because they had been doing this online, they had a national network of survivors all over the country that had graduated their program. It's called the Elevate Academy. And so I told her about my photography project and we just decided um, pretty quickly that it was a great fit. So they, they, like I said, they were very gracious. They opened their network up to me. We sent out an email. I chose a route that I wanted to do on my bike, which is basically a giant square around the United States, hitting all four corners. And uh, we sent an email out to their network of survivors and said, if you'd like to take us up on the opportunity of professional headshots, just shoot Lauren an email. And we were overwhelmed with the response and I had to cap it at 40. And uh, pretty much right after that, I hit the road. I'm I'm in less than a year from my, from finding out about the affair to being on the road. It was, I think nine months or something. And uh, yeah, so we partnered with the Rebecca Bender and the Elevate Academy. I did 10,000 miles uh, around the country on my motorcycle solo we did uh, 40 photo shoots. We did events in, I think, six or seven different cities. And, and we raised together with Rebecca's network um, almost $60,000. So it was really the, the foundation for everything I'm doing today. Wow. Well, so I want to I hone in on just a couple of small details, and then I want to ask you more things. But one thing is that I'm touched in it and have admiration that you chose to have people volunteer for this. You didn't go knocking on door saying, Hey, are you a survivor? I want to take your picture. And these are people that have already been exploited and taken advantage of in lots and lots of ways. And you also chose 
mostly women, I'm understanding. I think all women or all but one? Uh, I did photograph a male on that. And um, that was just because at that time, um, so men are trafficked. That's something we like to definitely put out there. Um, They're less likely to come forward and they have had less um, male survivors go through Elevate, but that's just what they, what they had going on at that time. Um, but yeah, so I just photographed one male survivor on that trip. Right. So my, my point in asking this though, is that you chose, you made this available, not to people that just got rescued five minutes ago, but people who had been through some recovery and some healing process so they could be open to such a thing. Am I getting that right? You are. And and these were things I had to learn. Um, at the time, I didn't realize all of the nuance that goes into to this work that I'm doing now. Um, you're absolutely correct. Um, this is a population that has been commercially exploited, for one. Um, second, for two, they have many of them been exploited via the camera through uh, pornography and photography. And so the camera I learned was very triggering for many, many survivors. And so through the process of just meeting them and having them open their hearts to me and share with me what that experience meant for them is where I learned to be so careful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, nowadays I still photograph survivors, but I only like to photograph them if they have graduated from a program like Elevate, because, you know, heaven forbid, I would re-traumatize somebody that would be you know, that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. So, right. Well, I think it's beautiful that you're sensitive to that and, and compassionate about it. And then the other, the other part of that is in our earlier conversation, you kind of let me know, you know, originally you thought, Oh, well, maybe I'll make a beautiful photography book out of this or something and changed your mind saying, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not what this is about. Yes. Tell me about that transition. Yeah. I thought, oh, this would be such a great f- you know, photo project and we can do a coffee table book and we can show America that survivors look just like every everyday people, which they do, right? We have these misconceptions about what a survivor of human trafficking looks like when in reality, they're just walking among us, um, especially if it's pimp controlled trafficking. Um, you know, we consider like, it's what America considers as prostitution, But if they have a pimp in the eyes of the law, that is a trafficking situation. And so they're a very marginalized population and we have all of these misconceptions about what they look like. So my idea in the beginning was, well, we'll do a book and we'll show America. And then I began to actually learn and to listen um, and listen to survivors on on what that would mean. And Rebecca was a, a brilliant mentor for me. And guided me through that process of understanding that, like I mentioned, these are this is a population that has been commercially exploited. So what happens when you put a book out and you're making money off of it or you're even getting like prestige as like the photographer? Like it's just it's not appropriate. And so we I shifted that thought process early on into realizing that these photo shoots are simply a gift. We ask nothing in return. They're not obligated to share their stories with us. They're not obligated to sign model releases. We keep their photo shoots secret um, and and period. That's it. And that's how it will always be. Wait, so they're not obligated to tell their story to you? No, it's not an interview. It's not an interview. It's an offering. It's, It's professional headshots. Yeah. There's something really pure and beautiful about that. Now, I will say that if you, if somebody goes onto your website, as I did when I was learning about you, there are photographs there of some of these survivors, but these are people who wanted yes. their photos out there because they're either activists or they're, they're lecturing and teaching about, uh, about sex trafficking and, and other abuse. So they wanted their photograph out there. Correct. Yes. And 
that's what's so amazing about the survivor population. Uh, they are one of the most powerful groups of people I have ever had the privilege to meet in my life. Many of them take their pain and their challenges and everything that they've been to, and they throw it into careers of helping other survivors. And so many of the survivors that I have photographed are published authors, professional public speakers. They work in policy. They run their own nonprofits. I mean, these are heavy hitters. And so, yes, the, the, the images that you may see on my website are definitely, we have model releases, but many of them are like some of the leading um, advocates in this movement. What you're doing now that I also gleaned from your website, and you can help clarify this a little bit, is if somebody wants to sponsor a shoot, for, because many of these people have been abused and so they have limited financial means, they're you know rebuilding their lives in their own ways, that if somebody somebody can sponsor a shoot so that a survivor can get uh, get a a photography session and uh, get a shoot done and get quality headshots for whatever they might want to do with them. Is that, is that what's going on now that you? Correct. Yes. The, the photo shoots are always free to the survivors. They, they never pay. And um, what I ended up doing this year, which was different than what I did in the past, was we're offering printed, um, professionally lab printed albums. Mm. So before I was just delivering them the, the digitals and then they can use those images for whatever they like. And, and then this past year, I went on the road again. I rode 4,700 miles, so a much shorter trip. I did 30 or 32. That sounds like a long trip to me. (laughs) It was seven (laughs) weeks. It was, it was great. Um, and it was during the heat dome of the summer. So every city I rode through hit their historical high. I got heat, heat (laughs) exhaustion twice. It was, it was a, it was quite a trip, but this year with those, those portraits, we are actually offering them, um, those albums, those keepsakes that they can have for the rest of their lives. And so if someone wants to sponsor a shoot, it's just $250. And that includes everything from wardrobe consultation to the actual shoot, um, the album, the processed images, everything. Wow. What a gift it is. So, so I'm going to ask you a really obvious question. Can you heal a broken heart by helping other people? Yes. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yes. So tell me about your heart healing through this. Yeah. How, How is it that seeing more of this abuse helped you, or in a more extreme version even, of it? How is that 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 helped your healing. It it seems like for some people that might make it worse, like being around that much pain and what's gone on. Well, I mean, it did make it worse. Um, That's what's kind of funny about this journey I've been on is, you know, I had this idea, I'm going to go on the road, I'm going to do this. And then I think I did experience um, what I later learned is called vicarious trauma. Because although I never asked survivors to share their story with me, many of them do. Um, it's a really intimate process that we go through with the photo shoots and there's a lot of, um, crying (laughs) and laughing, but, um, yeah, I did. I, I just, and then getting more involved with the work in general. Um, it's, it was, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to fall in love with people and then hear what they've been through and not get crushed Mm -hmm. by it. Um, because, so many survivors have now become like some of my best friends. And um, when you grow to love somebody and then you find out what they went through, it's, it's hard. So it, it did make it worse for me. I won't lie. So when I came off of the road, I was, 
uh, it was a tough time for me. I was like emaciated. I had lost a ton of weight on the road. I had insomnia. I was still dealing like very much in my own broken heart and my recovery from emotional abuse and reconstructing my identity and on and on. So it didn't happen. Oh, just a few things. Just a few things. <laughs> no big deal. And, um, and then I had all of this like world pain to, to consider and to process. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was tough. I, I won't lie. And, um, it took me years to kind of pull out of that, but I can say that those relationships with the survivors have helped me continuously throughout the years. Um, and I do get a lot of, of tips from them and learn how did they triumph and, and what, what kinds of therapies are they trying and what kinds of, how are they helping each other? And, and so I have continued to learn so much from the survivor community. And, um, so yeah, it did take some years, but I do, I do feel healed. I feel confident in saying you can, you can heal yourself through helping others. Um, you know, we're meant to be connected as human beings. You can heal yourself through helping others, but you also need to take care of yourself through the process. Exactly. That I, I have known people who just dive headlong into service and I call them, you know, the wounded helpers, mm, you know, yeah. that, 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 that then they're, then they can cause more problems. So, so if somebody has, is, is in recovery from whatever, whether it's addiction or abuse or surviving loss or whatever, that there has to be some self-care along in that process too. Yes. I want to, we have just a few moments left and I want to ask you a favor, which is that can you educate me and our listeners a little bit? Because I think that we do have a specific notion of what sex trafficking is. Like you said, what Cambodia, like you think of, you know, poor women of color from another country being kind of put into a boxcar and, you know, transported for sex slavery. Like that, that's what, when I hear sex trafficking, that's the image that comes to my brain, probably because I've watched an episode or two of CSI or something. <laughs> but can you broaden my definition and my understanding just a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, so human trafficking overall has to have a couple of criteria. For one, the international definition is that it is it uses force, fraud, or coercion. Um, so it has to have some of those elements to be um, counted as human trafficking. Also, there, there has to be a trafficker and a buyer for the most part. So it's kind of a, a triangle, right? You have the trafficker, the buyer, and, and the, the victim. Um, or survivor. Right. And so that those are the kind that's kind of the framework for it. But um, the Polaris project, which manages the United States um, National Human Trafficking Hotline, they're the biggest data collectors on trafficking in the country. They have identified 25 unique typologies of trafficking that exist in the United mm. States. Um, I mentioned earlier pimp controlled trafficking. There's also familial trafficking that happens a lot with children and, and people who are being trafficked by their mm. own parents. And that is much more prevalent in the United Ugh. States than we can even understand. It's so underreported. And that's got to be a special kind of injury oh, to be trafficked yeah. by one's own parents, uncle, whatever. The people who are meant to love you. Yeah. It's very complicated. And, um, it's it's a really low survival rate. Um, many survivors never make it out of the life. Um, they say it's 1%. It, again, statistics are a little tough because it's not reported as much as it happens. But um, yeah. So th those are just two types. Right now, we're also experiencing a lot of massage parlor trafficking in the United States. That's the fastest growing type of crime 
tell me. So in other words, there's an owner or a pimp manager, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. And the young people or women and boys, I imagine too, are, I mean, they can leave, but they're psychologically caged. Well, in, in the massage parlors, uh, it's actually probably more likely that they cannot leave. Mm. Um, and so there's massage parlors everywhere. We have some in our city here in Medford, Oregon. Um, our law enforcement sure. just shut down two of them. And that is more of an international issue where they're bringing in people who do not speak English. They confiscate their passports. They, they do intimidate mm. them with, if you go, if you tell anybody, you're going to be arrested. You know, um, they're usually, they come to the massage parlor all in one van or they sleep at the massage parlor. Um, so these are some things to look out in your own communities. If you right. see like a massage parlor and it just says massage and the windows are closed, it's like, mm, what's going on in there? There's no advertising or phone number or anything. Yeah, that's a whole different deal. That's just three out of the 25 that have been identified in the United States. So it's it's very prolific. Um, one thing that we like to focus on is the demand side. It's very easy Mm. to get caught up on the offense and thinking like, how do I keep my daughter safe? That's a question I get all the time. I always respond with, actually, how can we teach our sons not to purchase sex? That's that's really the root of it. Mm. We have uh, created a culture of sex buyers who are, you know, it's a billion dollar industry in our country. American men are the largest population of sex buyers in the world. And so that's something that we have to confront if we could teach the next generation of sons not to purchase sex, we could eradicate sex trafficking in one generation. Wow. Well, and not to be devil's advocate here, but I also know that there are people who have, who feel as though they are voluntarily part of, they're in, in the sex industry. They choose that. They do it themselves. They feel empowered in those ways that may not be, you know, what I would want for my kids and it may be what they want for themselves. If somebody is acting in their free will and choosing this, that's that I want to be sex positive about that choice. But we're talking about people that are coerced, pushed, uh, belittled in some psychological or emotional way so that they don't feel free to leave, all of those kinds of things. I'm, I'm not saying that, I, that I'm endorsing all... Um, prostitution by any means. But I, I do know that there are, there are those who regard themselves as sex positive people and participate in that. I have ambivalence about that. I'm, I'll tell you the truth. I, I have ambivalence about it and I don't, I don't want to sound prudy or judgy about it, but I do struggle because so many people in the sex industry later disclosed that they were more wounded than they thought they were. So I, I want to be open-minded to those who choose to empower you know, themselves in this way. But I think that what we're talking about is a whole nother deal. Yeah. It's, it's a hot debate. I will say that it's uh, something that we are, we are dealing with in the state of Oregon as we're facing some legislation to legalize prostitution. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be coming up on a ballot measure this year. But one thing I like to point out about sex work is that, um, And I'm going to just generalize here. Most sex work, if people are there by choice, they're still coming from a a place of privilege. Whereas most people who are in sex work are vulnerable populations. So we see a lot of statistics like um, 40% of people arrested for prostitution um, in in Washington are people of color where they're only 8% of the population, right? And so we have a lot of indigenous 
LGBTQ minority populations that are supplying the bulk of for the demand. Right. And so it's um, yes, the pro sex work debate is is heated. But I also like to remind people to consider who's actually supplying the demand. It's it's vulnerable populations. Right. Right. Well, Lauren, I am so in awe of what you're doing. And I know that you're, you're in the process of writing and revising a book about this that isn't out yet when it is, please, please, please come back and tell us about it and and let me make it available to people. I know that that's not what you have right now, right now, if people want to sponsor a photography session, how would they do that? You can visit our website. It's ridemyroad.org. Uh, we have a, a tab there for photo shoots, and you can see some of the work that we've done and check out some of our survivor leaders. We also offer a university. So if you just want to learn more about human trafficking, it's called Disruptors University. You can also sign up on the website. It's free. Oh, I like the name, Disruptors, yeah, Disruptors. University. We're here to disrupt <laughs> the disrupt the demand for commercial sex with our partners at the Epic Project. And we, we have a lot going on. So feel free to check out our website. We're busy. Well, Lauren Trantham, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project and for sharing your story with me today. Thank you for what you're doing for people that might be invisible to many of us and helping them to come out of the shadows and re-embrace their lives. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you for having me. As I record this commentary about my conversation with Lauren Grantham. Gentle rain is falling in California for the first time in a very long time. So you may hear some noise behind me and I'm not mad about that at all. (laughs) I'm going to enjoy that rain. And it also puts me in mind of being thoughtful and quiet and listening to what's around us. You know, I'm in awe of so many of my guests here on the Morning Glory Project. So wowed am I by their courage and their tenacity, their creativity, their sheer determination, that I just constantly count myself a rich woman for each of these encounters. And still every once in a while, among these amazing humans, there's one that pops out that really gobsmacks me. And Lauren Trantham is one of those. I'm in awe of the fact that someone who had just recently survived a tragic loss of of a marriage and was a survivor of an abusive relationship, that she somehow intuitively knew that she could heal herself by connecting to others who needed more, that she could heal her broken heart by helping others. She knew it from the beginning. It's like she said, spoiler alert, it works. <laughs> but she was had the courage and tenacity to do that. So that's extra bloom number one. But there are a couple of other things that I really want to expand upon that Lauren touched on. I just don't want to miss them. One is that abusive relationships come in all forms. And psychological, emotional abuse is one kind. We're not comparing them as less or more than any other kind. It's a different kind of abuse with different kind of damage. And I also want to say that 
People who find themselves in abusive relationships often ridicule themselves. How could I be so stupid? How could I, what, what's wrong with me that I would choose this kind of person? And Lauren was really good to kind of clarify that, particularly when you're dealing with somebody who has controlling and particularly narcissistic qualities, they're really good at becoming what you need. They have a, they're very, as she said, they're very good listeners and they can make themselves seem like your dream come true. Now, you know what? Some of us are lucky enough to have found a partner in our lives that really is a dream. So I don't want to say that everybody that seems dreamy isn't, but there's some people that put that on as a facade and as a trap and they do that kind of wooing and what she called grooming. I just want to validate that those circumstances present themselves and they can fool the best of us. Lauren, who didn't come from an abuse background, who had a confidence in herself, found herself in a relationship like that. It can happen. Sometimes it happens as pattern because of our history and we make the same tragic choice over and over again, but sometimes it's just out of the clear blue. The other thing that I really want to bring up here is that Lauren was able to make what I like to call empathy bridges. Though her circumstances were different than the trafficking abuse survivors that she was encountering, her own pain and abuse was enough that she could empathize and understand what they were going through, that there were enough similarities that she could bridge that gap. And I think that sometimes we disqualify ourselves from helping others because we think, oh, what would I know about that? You know, if you haven't, for example, lost a loved one to gun violence, you may not understand that particular experience, but perhaps your other loss, maybe you've had a loss because of an accident or an illness, and you can connect your loss to that and then listen and try to understand what their circumstances are that are different from your own. So building an empathy bridge is partly about looking into yourself and seeing what experiences you've had that might make you empathically connected to somebody else, but also being quiet enough to listen for their unique circumstances and the story that they need to tell. I think that we can all build empathy bridges to suffering to loss, to pain, to fear. And I believe that storytelling is part of how we build those bridges, that we hear the circumstances, we put ourselves into the story pages of books that we read or films that we watch or songs that we hear or stories that we hear told. And we're able to connect what we've experienced to what they've experienced. And we fill that bridge, we beef it up by listening and understanding somebody else's experience. I'm going to call that not just an extra bloom, but a whole meadow full of blooms to take and remember. I hope that you are building your empathy bridges and people are building them toward you because that is how we gain strength. And that is how we bloom. <laughs> 